Introduction Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. In the Greco-Roman world, into which Paul was sent as an apostle of Christ, philosophy, rhetoric and oratory were very important. The Greeks were obsessed with these things and with the wisdom of men. When Paul went into this world, he did not fit the expectations that the Greeks had of a philosopher and a teacher of wisdom. He also fell short of their expectations in terms of rhetoric and oratory skills. They were dissatisfied with him. In particular, he did not have the charisma, what actors call stage presence, that they had come to expect of those to whom they looked for guidance and wisdom and understanding. 1. The first century context. This is clear from the complaints that the Church of Corinth made against him. For his letters, say they, are witty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. 2 Corinthians 10.10 10. Compare 1 Corinthians 1.17 1 Corinthians 1.17 2, 1 and 4 He was considered rude in speech. 2 Corinthians 11.6 The word translated as rude here means number 1. A private person as opposed to the state or an official. 2. One without professional knowledge, unskilled, uneducated, unlearned. It also means the layman as compared with the expert. In other words, one who is unskilled in any art, the arts in question here being the Greek arts of rhetoric and oratory. It is this Greek word from which we derive our term idiot. What is in view here, therefore, is not the message itself, the content or subject matter of Paul's preaching, since Paul says immediately, yet not in knowledge. It was not that Paul did not understand the gospel or that the content of his message was rude or unlearned. Everyone recognised that the content of his message was powerful and weighty. Rather, what was considered rude or unprofessional was the style in which he delivered his message, that is, his lack of rhetoric and oratory skills and his lack of charisma. Paul's message, the content of his preaching and teaching, was powerful, but his lack of charisma irritated the Corinthians and they abhorred the style in which he presented the message because it did not kowtow to the Greco-Roman ideals regarding what constituted good philosophy, wisdom and rhetoric. In other words, they did not consider him a gifted speaker. Paul had to defend himself against this accusation in both of his letters to the church at Corinth. It is obvious from reading these letters that Paul had come under severe criticism and that his ministry was being disparaged and deprecated by those who had made an idol out of the gifted speaker who embodied the Greek ideals of wisdom and rhetoric. He was being judged in terms of the world's ideals and standards concerning charisma and speaking abilities. This is also a problem that the modern church faces. The Greco-Roman heritage regarding these matters is very strong in Western culture. And this heritage has always exercised a strong influence upon the Western church. We need to pay attention, therefore, to how Paul deals with this. It is a major theme in his letters to the church at Corinth. The gospel was foolishness to the Greeks. 1 Corinthians 1.23 Why? Because of its content. 
The Christian worldview is the complete antithesis of the non-believer's view of reality. The central message of the gospel is creation, fall and redemption. These three truths are the foundation of the Christian faith and they stand as a great bulwark against the non-believing world. All three doctrines stick in the throat of the non-believer. The non-believer will not accept them and will do everything in his power to overturn and hold down these truths. All three doctrines were considered foolishness to the Greeks. First, the Gospel teaches that the creation is the handiwork of God and that it is a good creation. But the Greeks found this unacceptable. In the Greek worldview, the physical world, matter, is inferior to the spiritual world. For the Greeks, the supreme God could never have stooped so low as to create a physical world. The creation of matter was, for the Greeks, a real problem with the world, not ethical rebellion against God. As a result, they considered the physical world to be the creation of a lesser God, the Demiurge. This was also the religion of Gnosticism, which infiltrated the Church early in its history and has continued to exert a disastrous influence in the Church right up to our own day. Second, the Christian Gospel teaches that the fall of mankind was ethical, not metaphysical. For the Greeks, man's fall was metaphysical. His spirit has become trapped in the physical world of the human body and salvation is deliverance from the physical body. Man's problem is not that he has offended a holy God by his rebellion and has come under eternal condemnation as a result. His problem, rather, is that his spirit, which is a divine spark, is trapped in the body. Christian gospel teaches that the physical body is created by God and good. The problem is man's will, his desire to be as God, to be his own God. The Greeks rejected this. For them, salvation was deliverance from physical matter, the body. It was the imprisonment of the spirit in the body that they considered evil. Third, therefore, the Christian doctrine of redemption was foolishness to the Greeks. Christianity taught the resurrection of the physical body. Nothing seemed more absurd to the Greeks than this. If the fall of mankind was the imprisonment of the spirit in the physical body, salvation must necessarily mean escape from the world of physical matter. But the Christians believed that matter was good and that the human body would be redeemed and resurrected. When the early Christians recited the Apostles' Creed, they thumped their chests when they came to the statement about the resurrection of the body to emphasize their belief that the human flesh that God created good will be resurrected on the day of judgment. Thumping the chest when reciting these words was like thumbing one's nose at the religious beliefs of the Greek world. In all these things, creation, fall and redemption, the beliefs of the Christians stood out like a sore thumb against the religious worldview of the Greeks. The gospel was an offence to the Greeks. Foolishness. But on top of this, Paul was no clever orator. Clever speaking was a Greek ideal. God does not call men to be silver-tongued orators for the gospel. The Christian ideal is speaking the truth plainly with grace. But the Greeks wanted gifted speakers who would come up to their ideals and expectations in terms of rhetoric and wisdom. Paul consistently gave them the opposite of this. 
he made a decision that he would not present the gospel in this way. 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5 Why not? Because this could not bring them salvation. The word of God is what the Holy Spirit uses to bring men to faith in Christ, not the clever rhetoric and oratory of men. Rhetoric and oratory may produce false conversions, but not genuine ones. Genuine conversion is produced by the renewing of the mind of man through the application of God's word by the Holy Spirit. 2. The Modern Context Today in Western culture we face a very similar situation to that faced by Paul in the Greco-Roman culture of the first century. In Western culture, increasingly, style is what matters and it takes precedence over content. Hence we have today a media culture obsessed with inane soundbites, one-sentence answers to the world's spiritual and economic problems that sound clever but are really quite shallow, misleading and ultimately useless. The population is virtually force-fed on a diet of politically correct soundbites that discourage independent thinking via the influence of the media, the state education system and the political system, which seems to be held captive to, perhaps even paralysed by, its obsession with creating and maintaining political correctness in all spheres of life. In addition, however, there is, in modern Western culture, a process of dumbing down that has produced an intellectual deficit in society. The combination of these two trends has been extremely detrimental to Western culture, and the Church has been afflicted by these deleterious influences just as much as any other institution. And this has vitiated her witness to the faith and her ability to provide moral and cultural leadership in society. Those who create a good impression by their charismatic style are promoted to positions of leadership, regardless of their maturity in or understanding of the faith. The Church is obsessed with those who are gifted speakers and gifted communicators, smooth operators with charismatic personalities and gifts in communication skills are doted upon as the answer to the Church's decline by congregations and denominational leaders alike. Yet, the Church still continues to decline and atrophy under this absurd prioritising of style over content. I wish I had one point for every time I have heard Christians say such and such is a gifted speaker or a gifted communicator. But it is not the content that counts, rather it is merely the style of the speaker. In fact, such speakers could be talking complete rubbish, even heresy, and often are. But, well, you see, such and such is a gifted speaker, and so we must listen to him expounding his doubts with such skill. If you get one of these gifted speakers to your church, the chances are he will be full of his own importance, and it will be his own personality that dominates the message, not the content of the gospel, and, more than likely, it will be because of the force of his personality that he will be considered to speak with authority, regardless of what he teaches. The modern church has lost discernment in this matter. Is this God's way? Is it what God wants for his church? No. Paul contradicts this whole emphasis in the most forthright way. God has chosen to do things differently. 
he does not call silver-tongued speakers, smooth operators, demagogues full of their own importance, with personalities to match their inflated egos, to preach his word. Chapter 1, verses 26 to 29. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. Now, let us be honest. Our great preachers, those worthies of the pulpit to whom so much attention is paid and on whom so much honour is lavished, who is glorified? God or men? Let's be honest. Think of the best. Let us not restrict ourselves here merely to the charlatans who are out to serve themselves only. Let us consider those who are renowned as great preachers, genuine Christians who are orthodox in their theology and also considered gifted speakers. Who ultimately gets the glory? God or men? Let us take two of the best examples. I pick them not because they are heretics or unorthodox, but because they represent what so many in the church consider to be the best of preachers. If there are problems with these men, how much more so with the heretics and charlatans who are gifted speakers? First, let us look at David Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a Christian, Reformed and Orthodox Calvinist in his theology. He preached salvation by faith in Christ through grace alone. And I do not doubt that many were helped by his ministry. I myself gained much from reading his books as a young Christian. But who got the glory in the end? So many who came to Christ under his preaching and ministry, or who came under his influence, became paralysed by their idolatry of the man. The doctor said it. Ergo, it must be the truth. I have heard this said and preached both by well-known and respected speakers in Reformed or Evangelical circles and by lesser mortals. He may not have wanted it himself, but he got it because he deliberately and self-consciously prioritised style as an essential component of true preaching. He championed rhetorical oratory. He may not have used these words precisely, but that is what he promoted and championed, a performance in the pulpit, preaching as an art form. Jesus and Paul would have scored very low in terms of the doctor's criteria for what constitutes good preaching, because they did not use their whole bodies. How do we know this? Because the Bible tells us that they sat down to preach, a major feeling in the doctor's school of preaching. But preaching today in Reformed circles is what the doctor did, not what the Bible teaches. Preaching and much else is judged by the doctor's standards among certain communities in the church today, not by the standards set forth in the Bible. The doctor has been idolised, and this has done much harm to the church. Why? Because the glory goes to man, not to God. Second, let us consider Robert Murray McShane. At least this man recognised that there was a problem, though he realised what was happening too late to stop it. He was associated with revival in Scotland in the 19th century. He was a prince of preachers, a gifted speaker. But in the end, he acknowledged that it troubled him that so many attended church to hear him, not God's word, that people were attracted to him and doted on him, not Christ. Many who flocked to hear him never became believers. 
These facts came out in the course of his pastoral work, and they troubled him. He was the one that many people came to hear, not Christ speaking in his word. The flesh of man was glorified in this. Of course, he did not want this. It grieved him. But it is what happened. This sort of thing happens on a small scale, as well as among men who are not internationally renowned speakers, but whose emphasis on style in the pulpit has resulted in the same glorification of men rather than God. The pastor of a church I attended as a young Christian was a gifted speaker. People attended church to hear him. You will probably never have heard of this man, but in his circles he was considered an outstanding preacher, a gifted communicator. Before his appointment, the church prayed for a real preacher without notepad. That was what was paramount to them, preaching style, oratory. Perish the thought that the preacher should have notes to follow in the pulpit. That would distract them from the real business of the pulpit, the performance of the preacher. And the church got their prayers answered. A man who preached without notepad and used his whole body. They were proud of their comet preacher. He was good. He walked up and down the aisles among the people and pressed the rhetoric home. What a performance! But it was all rather short on content and substance. I seem to recall that whatever text was announced, it usually turned out to be John 3.16 in the end. He was a good, sincere and genuine Christian. Do not misunderstand me, but this is just my point. People often came to church to see him, not Christ. He was regarded by many in the community as a model speaker, and they came to church to learn his rhetorical techniques, not to listen to God's word explained. The church is subtly taught to look for the wrong things by this kind of thinking. Men with charisma and great communication skills, pulpiteers. But there are no pulpits in the Bible. The pulpit is a concept foreign to biblical Christianity. In the Bible, authoritative teaching is done from a seated position. Hence, Christ criticised those who sit in the seat of Moses and teach the law, but do not obey it themselves. Matthew 23, 2 and 3. Jesus preached from a seated position, both in the synagogue, where it was the custom to stand to read the scriptures and then sit down to read them. Luke 4, 16 to 21. And in the countryside, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 1. And from the fishing boat, Mark 4, 1. Paul, as he entered the synagogue on his travels, would have followed the same procedure that Christ followed in the synagogue. This tradition passed into the church. The bishop's teaching is done from a seat, the cathedra, which is Latin for seat. The building in which the bishop's cathedra is housed is the cathedral. Even the Pope is considered to speak infallibly when he speaks ex cathedra from his throne. But what we have today in our churches is the centrality of the pulpit. The word pulpit comes from the Latin pulpitum, meaning a staging made of boards, a scaffold, platform, pulpit for public presentations, lectures, disputations, and especially a stage for actors. There you have it. The pulpit 
is a stage for actors, and when it is made the centre of the church's life, the result will be that the church is dominated by men who are primarily actors, great performers. The whole life of the church will begin to revolve around them, not around Christ and his word. In other words, the church will become dependent on the preacher and take on the character of the preacher. And when the preacher leaves, the church will flounder until a new performer can be found around whom the life of the church can revolve. This is what happens repeatedly in church life, especially in free churches. So, I ask again, is this God's way? Is this what God wants for his church? 3. The Biblical Perspective From one end of the Bible to the other, from Moses to Paul, you will find that God did not choose gifted those who were gifted speakers. Those whom God chose as his prophets and spokesmen were, almost invariably, not the obvious choice in terms of the criteria that men think are important. It seems that God deliberately chose those who were not gifted speakers. Indeed, it seems he chose those people who found it quite difficult, for one reason or another, to speak for God, and who were not naturally endowed with the abilities necessary for a career in being a gifted communicator. This was deliberate. There is a reason for it, and Paul spells it out here. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Paul deliberately avoided the very kind of preaching that so many seem to think is essential today, precisely so that he might avoid the false conversions that had so often accompanied the performance of great preachers.